I like to hear Nate read Scripture, and so he's going to read for us our text this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate that. One 20th century theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, made this cynical statement. He said, quote, The church is like Noah's ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, we couldn't stand the stink inside. In some cases, that might be an accurate assessment. Some congregations probably are odiferous. But that wasn't true about the ancient church at Thessalonica. This was an exceptional church, and this congregation manifested seven vital signs of a healthy congregation. Let's go through them. The first sign was that this church had a salvific faith, a salvific faith. Verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's the three-member missions team. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul authored altogether 13 books of the New Testament. All of them were epistles. Epistle means letter or message, so all of Paul's books were essentially letters. Uh, either to individuals or to congregations. It's interesting, at the beginning of this epistle um, to the Thessalonians, Paul identifies himself just as Paul. He starts, first word, Paul. That's actually unusual, because in some of his letters to other churches, he first identifies himself as an apostle. As an example, Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. The original first century apostles were the primary authoritative representatives of Jesus Christ on earth after he ascended into heaven. If an apostle spoke, then people listened. Because apostles were the ultimate human authoritative source in the earliest churches. John was the last apostle to die about 95 AD. And so there are now no more apostles. There are some self-professed apostles, uh, such as those in the erroneous New Apostolic Reformation movement, but those men are counterfeits and frauds because there are now no more apostles in the original biblical sense. And the reason no one is an apostle 
is that no one qualifies to be an apostle. The reason Paul sometimes identified himself as an apostle in his communication to those earlier churches was in order to establish his apostolic credentials. And that was necessary because sometimes in those other letters, he had to exercise some correction. Sometimes in some letters, Paul was forced to condemn those churches about congregational sin or some serious doctrinal problem. And he reminded them that he had the right to do that. He had the right to correct them, the right to condemn them because he was an apostle. But that wasn't necessary at Thessalonica. Nowhere in this correspondence does Paul have to condemn or get onto this congregation. This was a completely positive letter because this congregation at Thessalonica is considered the best representation, best representative of the church in the entire New Testament. This was an outstanding church. So Paul didn't have to pull out his apostle card. And that's the reason he started this salutation as just Paul. Paul. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all. Paul was from the south. For you all. That's what he said there. <laughs> Making mention of you in our prayers. This book is essentially a big thank you note. Paul was commenting on how grateful he was for those Thessalonians. Remember, people are a gift from God, and we are to be grateful to God for them, just as we are most grateful for, to God for this congregation. Uh, this congregation has been so good to us. There are some amazing people here at Shadow Mountain, and I'm grateful to God for the privilege of, of being your spiritual shepherd then notice Paul said, making mention of you in our prayers. And we will do the same in El Paso. Uh, we want to be kept on the prayer chain so we can uh, be kept informed on who to pray for and different things. And um, we're praying nonstop for the search committee and praying that God would give them wisdom to bring someone special to succeed me. Notice verse 3. Remembering without ceasing... And that phrase, remember without ceasing, means I continually, at all times, remember this. Paul said, I cannot forget this. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Faith means to trust in, to put our confidence in, to put our reliance in something or, in this case, someone. The Thessalonians had a salvific faith. That word salvific means salvation or saving. So this was a particular faith that brought someone salvation. There are different faith applications, but this faith is applicable to salvation in particular. This salvific faith saved them from sin and saved them from sin's eternal consequences as salvific faith does now. And we know these Thessalonians had a salvific faith because Paul said it was a work of faith, meaning it was a faith that worked. The actual word work means a deed that is done. It is an act uh, it is something that is achieved, and that is what salvific faith does. 
Good works cannot, cannot save someone. Only faith can save someone. But the faith that saves someone then produces in and through them good works. James 2 verses 14 through 26 is a critical comment on this matter. That section teaches that someone's salvific faith in Christ then produces in and through that someone works for Christ. Works are varied from the proverbial helping a little old lady across the street to putting a check in the offering to volunteering in VBS to sitting with someone in the hospital to volunteering in the BBS, to being baptized, <laughs> to volunteering in VBS, <laughs> to leading a small group Bible study, to bringing someone a bag of groceries, to volunteering in VBS. <laughs> Due to some extenuating circumstances, some people that volunteered had to drop out, and so we still need help even now. So see Taylor Ann after the service. And these post-salvation works are visible, tangible evidence that someone has salvation and actually is a Christian. We should interrogate ourselves. Each of us should interrogate ourselves and answer this question. If we were in a courtroom being tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Faith produced good works is a part of that evidence. That is Christian evidence. Faith that doesn't produce in and through someone practical, visible, tangible, righteous deed is an illegitimate faith. It is a dead faith, an inactive faith, a superficial faith, a pseudo-faith, a false faith, a counterfeit faith. And that non-works producing person is not a Christian no matter what he claims because he doesn't have salvific faith. If he had salvific faith, that would result in good works. Nothing else matters unless we have that verifiable evidence that we have exercised a legitimate salvific faith in Jesus Christ. It has to start there. And that's the reason this is the first sign. The second sign is this church demonstrated love-motivated labor. Love motivated labor. Verse 3 continues, Remembering without ceasing your labor of love. We just mentioned works. The word labor is some different from the word work. Now don't miss this. It is said that work focuses on the particular task that needs to be done. And the word labor concentrates on the effort that is expended in order to do that task. One more time. The word work focuses on the particular task, and the word labor concentrates on the effort that is expended in order to do that task. In the original Greek language, labor was a word that implied arduous toil and sweat to the point of exhaustion. But notice that the motivating force behind all that exhausting labor was love. Paul called it a labor of love. And that is actually a common modern saying. As an example, a mother that cares for a special needs child would consider caring for that child to be a labor of love. 
that mother expends unending effort to meet that child's needs. And the internal motivation for doing that would be a love for that child. These Thessalonians expended holy sweat. These people labored in serving God and in ministering to people to the point of absolute exhaustion. And it was because those ancient Christians at Thessalonica loved people and loved Jesus. And those Thessalonians considered serious sacrificial effort a labor of love. And that should also be characteristic of us. In his book, God is the Gospel, author John Piper, and he is a prolific author, has a suggestion to better help us determine if, in fact, what we are doing is motivated from a sincere love for Jesus. He said this, quote, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever desired and all the leisure you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you have ever seen and all the physical pleasures you have ever experienced and there's no human conflict or any natural disasters. If you could have all of that, then could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus wasn't there? I hope the answer to that question is no. I wouldn't be satisfied in that state because heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. The answer to that question uncovers the reason why we do what we do. If what we do is an extension of our sincere love for Jesus, then it is the same labor, love, motivated labor the Thessalonians demonstrated. And if that is the case, we're good. The third sign, this church had an enduring, meaning patient hope, an enduring, meaning patient hope. Verse 3 continues, Remembering without ceasing your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. I might interject some time ago, I met an attractive 30-something woman who had the most unusual first name. It was Patience. Her parents named her Patience. She introduced herself to us as Patience. And after getting to know her, that name seemed to fit. It would be awkward to have that same name and be impatient. You'd probably have to go by a middle name or something. In the original language, the word translated as patience means literally to remain under, to remain under, and it has the idea of endurance and steadiness, steadfastness, persistence under, under difficult circumstances, under pressure, under problems, and under trouble. Patience is the same as determined persistence and endurance. Patience means if times are difficult, and people times are difficult. If times are difficult, then we don't defect. We don't stall out. We don't throw in the towel. We don't abandon the task. If the going gets tough, then we just continue on no matter what. If things were difficult, my father said to me often, 
He said, just keep on keeping on. And that's the essence of this patience. Now notice this patience is called patience of hope. We use that word hope different from how Paul used that word. We use the word hope to mean to wish. As an example, I hope I get a refund, refund from the IRS this spring. And I do, each spring, I hope, I hope I get a refund. Now, we are wishing to get a refund, but there's no guarantee we are getting a refund. But that's how we use the word. But Paul used this word hope not to mean wishful, but to mean a confident expectation. So in a biblical sense, what we hope for is what we are confident, what we are certain, what we are sure we're about getting. This patience of hope means the reason we are able to exercise patience and endurance and perseverance and not give up in tough times is because of the hope, meaning the, because of the absolute confidence we have in Jesus that he can help us survive this nasty now and now and then bring us to heaven and get us out of this mess. And hope and confidence in Jesus is what we should expect from ourselves. I want us to notice 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Uh, there's a background to this. Um, God called me to preach in the fourth year of a five-year uh, engineering program uh, in college. Um, uh, we were married. Uh, it was fourth year, and... Uh, God just got a hold of me and turned me around and said, I want you in the people business. And I said, yes. Um, but since I attended school at Laterno University, uh, and since Laterno is the Christian Polytechnic University, uh, they had a Bible department. I ultimately finished my degree in engineering, which I've never used. It hangs on my wall. Um, I don't think anybody's impressed. Uh, but, but I took additional courses because I'd made a career change. I was finishing my education, but I wanted to get a jump on what I needed to know to pastor. So one of the classes I took was homiletics. Homiletics is the science and art of preaching. I remember our prof. He was Harold Fleming. He was a performer professor of speech and debate at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, but as a committed Christian, and he was... Uh, he was a lay pastor. He would do interim pastoring. He wanted to preach in a Christian environment, a teach in a Christian environment, so he taught homiletics. And each of us were assigned uh, um, a text. He assigned the text and to preach a 15-minute sermon. And so uh, this is the text I was assigned. Uh, it's not a familiar text to most people, uh, but this was my assignment. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, now the things which are seen is the here and now on this earth. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the things which are not seen is all that is in heaven. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Meaning the things we can see here and now on this earth are all temporary. And the things we cannot see now, those things that are invisible to us now, those things that are in heaven are 
permanent. Now, notice the first phrase in verse 17. For our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. That word affliction mentioned in verse 17 is a reference to trouble, intense trouble. Something Paul had been accustomed to. But Paul said he considered his personal affliction, he considered his personal troubles to be light, meaning weightless. That reminds me of uh, working out in the gym, lifting and... uh, um, you know, one of the guys maybe wants to attempt a PR. It's a personal record. And he, he's, you know, he's focused. He wants to do this. And there's a certain, um, it's part of the lifting culture to encourage one another. That's just part of the culture. It's what you do. So, so if he's with some guys that have been working out and he wants to attempt a PR, all the guys stop and gather around him and, and shout encouragement to him. And you, you hear stuff like, come on, come on, you can do this. Lightweight, lightweight. Paul said he considered his personal afflictions and personal troubles to be lightweight. Then he said this, this light affliction is but for a moment. Most people have heard or have used themselves the idiom, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. That precise phrase is not found in scripture. So people are curious where it originated. Some attribute that phrase to Solomon, found in some non-Jewish source from the mid-19th century. But it's more probable that phrase came from a 13th century Persian poet, a poet whose name I cannot pronounce. And then President Lincoln popularized that phrase after he used it in a speech he made in 1859. That phrase, this too shall pass, Uh, is describing the impermanence, the impermanence of all things, meaning no circumstances on this earth are permanent. All is temporal. That's exactly what Paul meant when he made the statement that our affliction and our troubles and our difficult times are but for a moment. The word moment is is a measure of time. And moment implies a beginning and then a quick and sudden end. So people use that phrase, this too shall pass, during times of difficult problems and extreme trouble to remind themselves that their circumstances will eventually change for the better. That's true in all cases. Someone might argue, but what about someone that has contracted a terminal disease? That's still applicable because to die means an end to that disease. And to the Christian to die means instant heaven and heaven means a permanent end to all trouble. Now, the Greek word, in fact, show this on the screen again, verses 17 and 18, the Greek word translated as weight used in verse 17 in the phrase, the eternal weight of glory, referred to a large, heavy mass. A large, heavy mass. So putting both statements together, Paul said he considered all the troubles he experienced, all the difficult times he suffered during his Christian experience, he considered them to be lightweight, weightless, and momentary. 
in comparison to his eternal and heavy future reward in heaven. As humans, we tend to focus on our unfortunate and depressing circumstances. We all do. We shouldn't. Because it just exacerbates our situation. We should remember, no matter what we're going through, remember what's waiting for us in heaven. That's what the Thessalonians did. That was their hope. This too shall pass. The fourth sign, this church had powerful biblical preaching. Powerful biblical preaching. Verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, we have said before, Christians are the elect. God has elected or selected us to salvation. That is non-negotiable. Uh, the question is, how did that election happen? And that has been debated for centuries. If you were not here and you did not see and hear the sermon I did on Calvinism versus Arminianism made simple, I think, you, you should listen to that because I address election. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Notice Paul said, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now don't misunderstand that statement. The gospel has to come to us in word. Meaning the gospel has to come to us in verbiage, in words. The gospel has to be in language. God had to reveal himself in words that can be understood in human language. So the gospel has to come in word. And the primary vehicle God uses to communicate to man those words about himself is preaching. Romans 10 verse 13, 14, and 17. Notice, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever calls on him shall be saved. Verse 14, how shall they call on him? Jesus, in whom they have not believed. How, the, how shall they believe in him? Jesus, of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear about Jesus without a preacher? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But notice, not in word only. Because verse 5, we just read, reads, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and we often ignore the Holy Spirit, and we shouldn't. The Holy Spirit is the principal energizing source behind the words and verbiage used in powerful preaching. That means Paul and other preachers that came to the congregation of Thessalonica weren't necessarily hyper-gifted communicators, weren't necessarily charismatic personalities and motivational types, but these were men who spoke with spiritual boldness and Holy Spirit power. And that power brought about conviction and brought about conversion and brought about ultimate life change in the people those men preached to. I am convinced powerful biblical preaching is extremely rare. English author and social critic Oz Guinness said, 
in all my studies, I have yet to see in those studies a Western society where the church pews are so full and the sermons are so empty. The biblical message in and of itself has dynamic, intrinsic power. Just the words on the page have intrinsic power. But the messenger, the one who communicates those words, should also have a commitment to God and a commitment to Scripture to the extent that he also manifests Holy Spirit-generated spiritual power. Church of England clergyman and prominent evangelical spokesman John Stott said before his death in 2011, there are many popular preachers, but only a few powerful preachers. And I agree. I have been doing this close to five decades. It's hard to believe. It seems I just got started. Um, But I've been doing this a long time. And preaching informative, thought-provoking, powerful, spirit-convicting, and biblical message is still an ambition of mine each time I preach. Sometimes I succeed, and sometimes I don't. But that is still the ultimate objective of preaching. And it should be the same of the man who succeeds me here. And search committee, don't settle for anyone less than that. John Wesley was an English pastor, theologian, and evangelist. He created a movement in the Church of England called Methodism. Wesley was born in 1703, died in 1791. He created this movement. The societies he founded became the dominant form of the independent Methodist movement that continues to modern times. Uh, There's a Methodist church on this street, just two churches over. Uh, The unfortunate part is that much of modern Methodism has apostatized from the historic Christian faith. That's the reason over the past months there has been almost 5,000 Methodist churches that have exited the United Methodist denomination because of its rampant wokeism. And I applaud them for doing that. There were some theological differences between us and Mr. Wesley. He was more Arminian in uh, his theological perspective. Uh, He also taught, I've mentioned before, sinless perfection or entire sanctification, meaning we can reach a state of sanctification in a practical sense where we don't sin anymore. I'm sorry, that's a mistake. Um, I mean, come to my house. (laughs) But in spite of these differences, John Wesley was a mighty man of God. And he was the spiritual energizer bunny. Listen to this. He was an itinerant evangelist going from one preaching venue to another preaching venue on his horse. Estimates are he rode more than a quarter of a million miles on horseback. He had to be bow-legged. Had to be. I mean, (laughs) on average, he preached two to three sermons per day. And altogether, he preached more than 40,000 sermons. In addition, he found time to author and or edit some 400 publications. But at the beginning, Wesley's strong preaching was rejected in Church of England parishes. He literally preached himself out 
of churches. So it is said that once after another rejection, he went to the cemetery. He found his father's grave, and using his father's tombstone as a pulpit, he preached, and thousands came to hear him preach. Someone inquired as to the secret of his effective preaching. He said this, I set myself on fire for God, and people come to watch me burn. That is the sort of man that needs to succeed me here. I would suggest to the search committee, don't dare call some spineless, gutless, weak-kneed, Casper milquetoast, anemic, namby-pamby, ear-tickling, pathetic, wokester excuse of a pastor. Those types are a dime a dozen. I would suggest that this congregation find a man to succeed me that, like John Wesley, is on fire for God. A man that is fearless. A man that is courageous. A man that isn't afraid to speak truth. Isn't afraid to speak truth to the culture. Isn't afraid to speak truth to social issues. Isn't afraid to speak truth to the madness that is around us isn't afraid to speak truth to sound doctrine, isn't afraid to speak truth to false doctrine and false teachers and false movements, find that man and then support him, encourage him, pray for him, and follow him to the gates of hell. A congregant from a previous church once sent me an email that I thought might be appropriate reading at this point. That email said in part... That was a great message yesterday, Pastor. In general, your sermons lead to self-examination. But it was good to have one so direct. I thank God that he has brought us to a church with a courageous pastor. It seems that at least once a month, you try your best to chase people out with your sermon. Good for you. You keep being obedient to the Lord. I hope that comment about chasing people out was tongue-in-cheek because that is not an objective of mine. But I'm a truth-teller, and the truth is divisive. And if I get to the point where I am no longer able to dispense biblical truth in Holy Spirit power, no matter where I am, I will continue to preach in Texas No matter where I am, if I am no longer able to communicate biblical truth and Holy Spirit power, then I should have enough respect for this sacred desk to step down and let someone else step up. Pray that I never lose that commitment. The fifth sign, this church imitated the right people. This church imitated the right people. Verse 6, and you became followers of us, us, meaning this missions team, us, meaning Paul and his associates, Silvanus and Timothy, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much, much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. This word translated as followers is from a Greek word that means mimics. Mimics. So these Thessalonians became little mimics and little copies of Paul. Little reproductions of Paul and his associates and of Jesus himself. Paul reiterated those instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. He said, imitate me as I 
also imitate Christ. Notice he didn't stop after imitate me, be like me, copy me. No, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Whoever succeeds me should have that same commitment. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The pastor's attitude should not be, do what I say do. His attitude should be, do what I do. He should set an example. He should never ask his people to do what he is unwilling to do himself. A pastor should tell his congregation, follow me, mimic me, imitate me. Someone's role models and heroes tell us something about them. Who do we want to emulate? From childhood, I admired preachers. Although I had no desire, absolutely no desire to become one, I admired them. I also admired athletes, especially athletes that were Christians. In grade school, I would go to hear one of these athletes or one of these preachers and speak and then stand in line after to meet them and have them sign my Bible. And I have dozens of signatures from men and women in some older Bibles. I have a signature from Paul Anderson. I've mentioned his name before. Before there was a Bill Kazmar and a Brian Shaw and an Eddie Hall, there was Paul Anderson, five feet, nine and a half inches in height, 360 pounds of weight, 24-inch biceps, 36-inch thighs, and a 64-inch chest. He was as wide as he was tall. And it is rumored, even at that size, he could dunk a basketball. He was the weightlifting gold medalist at the 1956 Olympics, a two-time world champion, and then he toured the United States doing incredible feats of strength. He could one-arm press, one-arm press, a dumbbell weighing 380 pounds. I remember seeing him at one of his exhibitions uh, take a two-by-six board, a board six inches wide, two inches thick. He then took a 16-penny nail. He took the head of the nail, wrapped it in a handkerchief, and not the tip, the head of the nail, in a handkerchief, then placed the head of the nail in the palm of his hand. He then squeezed that nail. He then raised his hand containing that nail tight in his hand, high above his head, and in one blow, he drove that nail completely through that two-by-six board. It was unbelievable. Afterwards, I went up to him and I said, can I see the board? You know, I'm kind of skeptical. And, uh, and I felt the board. I held the board. He drove that nail completely through the board and a half an inch protruding on the other side. So I got inspired. I went home. I got a one by six, you know, baby steps, a one by six. Put a 16 penny nail, handkerchief around it, boom, all the way through. And then I thought to myself, I have to do two of those? The, the nail won't go through the board, it'll go through my hand. I'm not even going to attempt it. But that's insane strength. And that was before athletes were using steroids and performance enhancing drugs. He never did once. And Paul was a committed and outspoken evangelical Christian that owned and operated a home for delinquent boys in Georgia. And that home is still in operation. Paul Anderson died in 1994. 
but I still have his signature in one of my Bibles. I have autographs, signatures from Jerry Falwell and Elmer Towns. Dr. Towns is alive at age 90. He has authored 170 books. Those men together in 1971 founded what would become Liberty University, the largest Christian university in history. I might add the next president, a president has been selected uh, starting this month. His name is Dr. Dondi Kosten. He is a PhD, uh, but more important, he is 32 years retired Air Force, and he retired as a major general. And he's an amazing man, and I'm excited to see Liberty under his, under his governance. But I have these men's autographs and others because I was raised to learn from and then imitate the right people. Number six, the sixth sign, this church was a model congregation. A model congregation. Verse seven, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. An example to all. Who believe. In the original language, this word translated example meant a type, an exact replica, a reproduction, and a model. Now think through this. If this church at Thessalonica was considered a model church, then it's because it consisted of model Christians. Because the church itself is just the sum total, the sum accumulation of its constituents. That means those Thessalonians were outstanding individual Christian models, examples of what a Christian to be, and then together formed this model congregation. One of my favorite films, and probably most of us have seen this film from 2009, the movie Blindside. The main character in that movie is not the adopted, homeless, and impoverished African-American teenager named Michael Orr, Michael spent multiple seasons as an offensive tackle on the left side in the NFL and uh, has a Super Bowl ring. But the principal character in that film is the affluent Memphis mother, Leanne Tooley. She had the initiative to rescue Michael from off the projects and adopt him. That's a picture of the entire Tooley family. Sandra Bullock, actress Sandra Bullock, had the role of Leanne Tooley. And she was excellent in that film. But at the beginning, she was actually hesitant to accept the role. She absolutely loved the script, but she wasn't sure she would be comfortable with Leanne. And that's because Mrs. Tui is a conservative, NRA, gun-packing, evangelical Christian. (laughs) And Sandra Bullock is not that. She is a more secular Hollywood person. And she brought to that project a lifelong suspicion of Christians that advertised themselves as being Christians. The first thing she told the real Leanne Tooley was, quote, one of my biggest concerns stepping into this role is this whole Christian thing, she said. I told Leanne it scared me because I've had a lot of experiences with Christians that haven't been that great. But she, Leanne, was so honest and forthright I feel like I have finally met someone who practices and doesn't just preach. I now have a faith in those who say they represent a faith. I finally met someone who walks the walk, and that made me happy. 
people, we are to model Christianity just as Leanne Tooley did to Sandra Bullock. I might add, Leanne's part almost went to Julia Roberts because Sandra Bullock declined the movie initially until she met Leanne Tooley. And I understand the women still have a relationship. 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody made this statement. One out of a hundred people might read the Bible, but the other 99 will read the Christian. Remember, we just might be the only Jesus someone is ever going to see. We need to represent. The seventh sign, this church had a strong evangelistic outreach. A strong evangelistic outreach. Evangelism is the presentation of the gospel. Remember the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4 is the announcement that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and then resurrected from the dead. And through receiving that gospel, we have salvation. Evangelism is the presentation of that gospel through personal witness or through public preaching. Evangelism is communicating that gospel and seeing people saved. Notice verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord, meaning this gospel, has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. This is fascinating. This sounded forth is translated from a strong Greek word that means literally to broadcast. That word was also used to describe a blast from a trumpet. That word was also used to describe rolling, loud thunder. It was a strong word, and the tense of the verb indicates it was a continuing sounding forth, a continuous thundering out the gospel. That means this was an evangelistic congregation. This was a congregation that wanted to get the gospel out into other geographical regions and bring that message to every conceivable people group in every conceivable location. In fact, those Thessalonians were such blabbermouths for Jesus. Paul said his team didn't need to say anything. It seemed everyone they met had already heard about Jesus from those Thessalonians. Before we had made the decision to move, I had been thinking about doing something unusual. Um, That space between the doors, the entrance, and then the fellowship area, the gathering area, that small space there, as we come in, that's called the narthex, or foyer, or vestibule, strange names, but that's what it's called. I had the idea about printing some words in large bold letters above those doors, the outside doors, as people could see them going out. I had the idea of printing in large bold letters above those doors these words. The church has left the building. That's a takeoff from the famous Elvis has left the building. The church is people. The church is not this building. We are the church. And after we have met here together to worship God on Sunday mornings, then our job is to leave this building. Our job is to get out there in the marketplace and neighborhoods and be aggressive witnesses for Jesus. 
D.O. Moody made the statement, I see the world as a wrecked ship. God gave me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all you can. And he did. There were more than a million converts in his crusades, his evangelistic crusades. And although I cannot document this number, it is said that one-on-one, Mr. Moody personally prayed with 70,000 people to receive Jesus Christ. An evangelistic church starts with an evangelistic pastor. 1 Timothy 4, verse 5. Paul said this, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Notice, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was a pastor of a congregation, just as I am. And uh, as his spiritual mentor, Paul told him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Not be an evangelist per se, but do the work of an evangelist. Do what an evangelist does. And what does an evangelist do? An evangelist evangelizes. A pastor should set the bar high. He should be an example to his people. And he should be an evangelist, a personal evangelist. I would challenge the search team. As a search were to narrow down the candidates for those that are serious considerations, I would challenge the team to ask that person this question. Give us the name of three people you have personally led to Jesus Christ in the last six months. I want details. Tell us how you pursued them for Christ and where are they now. Pose that question and then sit back and prepare to be disappointed. I've never met a pastor who didn't believe in evangelism. All pastors are going to say they're committed to evangelism. But 95% of them don't evangelize. And I know I've been in hundreds and hundreds of homes throughout this valley. In each home I go to, I ask one question. Has there ever been a pastor in this house? In a couple cases, they invited the pastor for dinner. But I mean a pastor unsolicited said, can I visit you? Not one. Not one. Because somehow pastors feel they are immune to this, these particular instructions. No. Remember, we practice what we actually believe. All the rest is just religious rhetoric. I close with this. The Great Commission is still our mission. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building wasn't much, and there was only one lifeboat, but the handful of devoted members maintained a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, those men and women went out day or night searching for those that were lost in the waters. Many lives were saved because of this little station, so that in time it became famous. Some of those that had been saved from drowning themselves and some others in the surrounding region wanted to associate with that station and so gave their time and money to that cause. New lifeboats were bought and new rescue crews were trained. And that little life-saving station got bigger. 
Some of the new Life Station members were unhappy, though, that the building was so small and crude and ill-equipped. They felt that a more comfortable environment should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. So a bigger and better building was built. Emergency cots were replaced with actual beds and better furniture was bought. Expensive decorative changes were made to create an attractive, life-saving motif. Because of those changes and improvements, that life-saving station became a club and a popular gathering place for its members. But in time, fewer members were actually interested in going out on life-saving missions. So the club hired professional lifeboat crews. But the life-saving motif still dominated the clubhouse walls, and there was still a liturgical life-saving boat in the meeting room, so the mission hadn't been totally forgotten. About that time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. All of them were filthy and smelled, and some were actually sick. The clubhouse was an absolute mess after all that. So the property committee met and immediately moved to have a shower built outside the clubhouse where shipwrecked victims could clean themselves off before coming inside the clubhouse. And besides, some of those victims were of a different race or ethnicity, and that was uncomfortable for some of the members. At the next meeting, there was a fracture in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as those things were now considered a distraction and unpleasant interruption to the normal social life of the club. But some old-time members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that the building was still called a life-saving station. But that minority was ultimately voted down and were told that if they were so interested in rescuing shipwrecked victims, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. But as time passed, so did those original life-saving station members. And that new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the previous one. It also evolved into a club with an active social calendar And then in time, from that group, some die-hard rescue types left and founded another life-saving station. History just continued to repeat itself. And today, if we were to drive down that coastline, we would see a number of attractive and exclusive clubs that were once life-saving stations. I understand shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. 18 months from now, I don't want to hear that this church has become another elitist, snobbish social club. I want to hear that this congregation is still a life-saving station. I want to hear that this congregation is still in the business of rescuing men and women from drowning in sin. Let's bow our heads. Father, there's a lot to learn. Probably no church at the present will ever be a Thessalonican church. I mean, that bar is very, very high. The standard is so high. The expectations are almost unattainable. But we've learned some things. We can try. We can try really hard to, uh, to replicate here. And I pray we will. Even though I'll be absent, I pray, God, that uh, the elders, 
search team. Chris, as the interim pastor, will commit themselves to being certain that these, these seven signs of a vital, seven vital signs of a healthy congregation are a part of this congregation. So I commit that to you. Make a difference in us, I pray. Thank you for what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen.